Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions' world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Arts and popular culture are made for today, not for tomorrow. Though creators surely hope to make contributions that will have staying power, movies, music, television, books, and artwork are made in and of the moment. Studios, networks, and publishers put out work in the hopes that a contemporary audience will embrace and pay for what they want now. There is little thought for what will come of it tomorrow or 20 years from now. However, the most an artist can hope for is to create something that will stand the test of time, in our case, in making movies or television that not only remain relevant and entertaining years past their sell-by date, but in many cases become more popular in the years that tick by. I'm astounded and grateful every day that I've had a couple projects that I worked on that were not big successes, okay, or flops upon release, only to become popular with the passage of time. Hocus Pocus was definitely not a hit when it came out in 1993, eight years after I wrote it, but is more popular now than when it came out. Staying power is rare and elusive, but when a movie is still celebrated decades after its release, it is time to celebrate, and the fans do. Witness the huge excitement over the recent 40th anniversary of John Carpenter's The Thing, for example. Well, this month sees the 35th anniversary of the seminal entry-drug horror movie, The Monster Squad. It was a turning point for many genre fans, and to celebrate, co-writer Shane Black and director Fred Decker have joined us on the slab. We'll get to learn how this classic monster mash came to be, and much more after this. Out soon from Dread, Tiny Cinema. A mysterious stranger tells the twisted tale of seemingly unconnected strangers whose lives will change in incredible and bizarre ways forever. As reality unravels, each person must battle incredible challenges from a multiverse seeking answers on the essential questions of life, death, love, and the fate of our future. Watch Tiny Cinema via digital on September 6th and on Blu-ray October 11th. That's Tiny Cinema. Gentlemen, welcome to Postmortem. Hello. Good morning. So this collaboration began at UCLA, but Fred, you tried to get into USC and UCLA film school, but had no success. That's right. So tell me how joining into the UCLA English department uh, led to your collaboration with Shane? Well, I, I, I had my choice between the two. Uh, there were a lot of my heroes who came out of uh, USC, some from UCLA, but most from USC. But I just, I liked the campus better, and I thought, the, you know, the girls were cuter, and I, there's, something was calling my name there. And I was going to make movies hell or high water. So my English degree was sort of, you know, just an excuse to be there. And what became clear after a while, after my first year, I think it was really the end of my freshman year and into my sophomore year, that what was really happening there, more than uh, an education, was I was making f- new friends who were like-minded, and that group of friends um, became kind of a, a club, an unofficial club. And it was sprawling. I mean, there are many actors and writers and directors and animators and musicians. And, uh, and we all sort of formed this, this camaraderie that I think uh, was wonderful and magic and, and resulted in a whole lot of work that people know over the last uh, mm. you know, 35 years, 40 years. Uh, it, was, it was great. And Shane was one of, was one of them. One of that original group, which <clears throat> I think uh, it came to be known at the time as the Pado Guys. Ah. Um, we actually did have a house, which was the literal pad. Yeah. And we were the guys. And uh, <laughs> if you if you knew the traffic of, of P- 
people that went through there, it was pretty, pretty phenomenal because many people, uh, you know, whether they were just starting out, they were nobodies. And then, you know, lo and behold, years go by and suddenly we go, hey, you know, who, you know, who had beers in, in, in here and, you know, vomited in the backyard because he had too many. So and so. Well, let's tell some names. Uh, <clears throat> let's Sam, name drop a little Sam bit. Raimi was at the pad. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth Shue was at the pad. Yeah, yeah, she dated one of our pad guys. And then, uh, you know, David Fincher was, was sort of a uh, part of the group, nominally at least, because he was involved with someone that we knew. And it was just, it was the kind of thing, there was a sign, you remember the sign that was in the door, it said 24, open 24 hours, neon sign. Someone took it or found it or whatever, placed <laughs> in it alley. in the window. <laughs> and basically, no matter what time of day it was. So you're driving, it's three in the morning, you're a little tired you, you have a see. date you've gone to dinner you come to the pad and yeah. somebody's going to be in the living room watching yes. a vhs of you know a better tomorrow or or, or a horror picture and uh it, it was it was a refuse so fred you were a lifelong monster kid you were refuge, mon- right? yeah. <laughs> it, refuge. it was full it of was garbage you were a monster kid from the very beginning comic books and monsters and things like that shane your your parents were printers and I guess that led to an interest in the printed word and pulp novels and noir novels. And yeah, it's, it, was, it was not so much that, because back, back east, there was never a sense that we'd ever have access to anything like that, that we never, you know, actually meet a writer or an actor or a filmmaker. Right, and this was Pittsburgh. Yeah. <clears throat> to the extent, it's interesting, because, like, my mom and dad were always allowed, not a hall pass, but they were allowed a crush, right? So my mother's crush was always Richard Burton. She goes, oh, you can read the phone book. He's so dreamy. <laughs> and my dad's, oddly enough, was Kathy Lee Crosby. Whoa. And he watched these. He said, God, look at that. Oh, she's something. And my mother and father, because they knew they would never meet Richard Burton or Kathy Lee Crosby. <laughs> so, so they didn't cool. really threaten the marriage. <laughs> no, but, but now... I'm in LA, and I realized, oh, so this is uh, this is what they talked about. If we lived out here, you know, maybe Dad would have driven past Kathy Lee Crosby, then we'd have a problem. But it's it's was striking to come out here and be confronted with the things which up up till now have been entirely theoretical in my mind, and to see at UCLA these friends who were not just scratching at the door, but actually making entrees into getting jobs in film. Starting with the stand-up comics that we knew, Ed Solomon and Jim Hertzfeld and people like that, mm-hmm. and they'd start writing jokes for people. Mm-hmm. And to us, that was like, what? That's I mean, Ed got a job on Laverne and Shirley in the final season, and <clears throat> we thought, oh my God, he's how made it. he's Amazing. made it yeah. to make a living as a writer. It was the most insane thing possible. Yeah, and and another friend of ours, Mariska Hargitay, we were all excited because she made a low-budget sex comedy. And you know, little realizing Jane Mansfield's daughter. Yeah. Little realizing that she would become the you know longest running uh, continuing character in the history of television. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So it was a simpler, more innocent time when we we're all excited by things that today we might even find a tad uh, wearisome. But at the time, I say this when I talk to younger people. I think Fred does too. So you're looking at people up on the stage or telling you about movies they've made. Said, so just stop. It's the other way around. God, what I wouldn't give to be on that chair with my eyes wide, looking at someone whose movies and just with it all in front of me, all the surprises, all the firsts still ahead. There's the first kiss, but there's also the first sold script. There's the first screening. There's the first everything. Well, it was so exciting. And nowadays, quite frankly, um, you know, we'll still do it, but it's, it's not as fun as it was. Well, that's one of the great things. One of the reasons I do this podcast is because I do get the excitement of talking to people I admire and whose work I learn about. You know, I learn something from every one of these conversations I have. And I take that with me, including the enthusiasm for film and embracing the writing films, books, whatever popular culture that I've been lucky enough to make a living in. But when did you first find out the two of you were so simpatico? Boy, that's a that's a tough question because again there was the, 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 there yeah. was a group dynamic, and uh, you know a, the actors would sort of gravitate towards the actors. Um, I always wanted to be a director, and writing was just going to be a means to an end to me. Shane, I always felt was much more literary uh, in that regard, and he was actually an acting major, correct? Yeah, I studied it <clears throat> and and learned that that the trick is you want to be 
exemplary at what you do. You want to feel at least that you bring a corner of it. You, you occupy a corner of it that perhaps is yours best served, that no one else would really do the same thing or better than you. Acting, there's so many better people. But you are quite memorable in, the, in Predator. Well, it's, it, you know, I wish they'd served more tequila at lunch. I would have been even better. <laughs> but the point of it is that Fred and I, very quickly, I think, I, my personality was not formed. I was very uh, rabbit, rabbit in a uh, maze kind of. Rabbit, I guess rabbits do Rat mazes. Rabbit in a maze, yeah. Sure. Uh, I, I like yeah. more better. like a rabbit. Yeah, the, rabbits, the ears are better. Yeah. yeah. I, I They're cuter than rabbits. <laughs> I was in a maze, but I could... I could, I could see my way through it sometimes, but the personality I had was dependent upon latching on to things that I saw as guideposts. Fred and the pan being one of those. Fred seemed to have it all together. I don't know whether he did, but he, <laughs> Clearly talked, not. he talked an amazing ball. He would sit there and he would just pontificate about film. And, I, and I would just, we'd all listen and we just knew Fred was destined for something. And... So I was drawn to this group, and at first as sort of an acolyte who um, we learned very quickly at the pad, and that the way to succeed, whether it's with Fred or me or any of those guys, is we found each other sharing information, sharing scenes back and forth. No jealousy, no like, oh, can I use this bit? And hey, I'll sue you if you do. No, it's, <laughs> yeah, use the bit. Take it. Do whatever you want with it. And eventually... Um, we help each other up the ladder. We leapfrog. So Fred gets a success. Ed Solomon saw Fred's script and helped him get a, an agent. Fred saw one of my scripts and said, would you like to do it? And so we all kind of help each other up this ladder. There's a sense before we were ever successful that we all had this sort of mutual kind of camaraderie that came out of just guys living like idiots, being <laughs> being sort of not... Nowadays, it would be goth nerds. Back then, it was what nerds? Just... Mm. Some kind it's of movie geeks. Yeah, movie, movie geeks. Yeah, it was your animal house. <laughs> Absolutely. And so I gravitated to it, and eventually we just helped each other out because we came to it. You know, I would wait for the new Fred Decker script with bated breath to see what he did, and I would learn from it, and I would try to emulate. And meanwhile, I would go to dinners with these guys. I had no money, so literally they would all order more food at the dinner, and then they just shuffle it onto my plate. <laughs> That's the kind of thing we did. So I could go to dinner with them at the nice restaurant. Right. And I just never forgot those days. I was happiest then. Well, it, what's interesting is our genre, which is considered by many a gun <clears throat> genre, a dark genre, are seemingly the most cooperative and least jealous of one another. It seems like people within the genre, whether it's makeup effects artists or writers or directors, filmmakers, we're all in this together because we all seem to live in a, a similar gutter. Well, if you're starting out wanting to make monsters and slashers and stuff like that, obviously you're not, uh, you know, the edge of, of you know, the, the literary uh, uh, pantheon. Right. So, you know, we're kind of coming in with... Uh, a sense of, 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 you know, a lack of pretense and, and just, you know, wanting to do stuff that, that, frankly, that turned us on when we were kids. So we kept that childlike approach as adults into the work. So, Shane, were you also a monster kid? Yeah. Um, I grew up in Pennsylvania and New, notably New Jersey. And in New Jersey, they had a thing, which I'm sure you, everyone has it. P Pittsburgh had Chili Billy Cardill. Yeah. And he had the Chiller Theater on Saturday. And, uh, New Who Jersey. you know is the father of the female lead of Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, Lori. Uh -huh. Right? Uh -huh. So we had creature features. Yeah, we had Elvira and Jeepers Creepers. Right. Yeah. But all the old Universal Monster movies, you know, I would wait all week because in TV Guide it said they were showing Frankenstein meets the Wolfman on creature features. So, yes, those were always my favorites. <laughs> Did you go through TV Guide and mark the horror movies coming out? <clears throat> I didn't mock them, but I would sit in the store and, and page through to the point where, you know, are you going to buy that kind of thing? <laughs> you know. Um, and you have to remember, this was before, uh, even really before uh, video, VH VHS, and beta, This where you couldn't record anything. Yeah, that was Let, let alone having a DVD or a Blu-ray. 1972 was when I really am discovering these, these movies, which is a little late, too, because I'm discovering... Um, in 1970, I'm discovering monsters. In 1972, I'm uh, discovering noir. Right. 
and all of it, you couldn't just get it. You couldn't dial it up on Netflix and binge it. You had to wait till, if I want to see The Wizard of Oz, uh, next January. Right, <laughs> yes. It'll be there, I like know, because they do it every year, but it's going to be a while. Or it's King Kong at 3 o'clock in the morning on Channel 36. And right. I would set, literally set my alarm and wake <laughs> up and go pad down to the TV room and watch it in my jammies. And uh, I did that many, many what times. What was on your jammies? <laughs> Feet. <laughs> <laughs> so, which brings us to the love of monsters, the Universal Monsters in particular, and Monster Club. So this was a collaboration <laughs> between Monster Squad, which was your own Monster Club. Um, but this was not for Universal. So you're dealing with Universal classic monsters, but they had trademarked their appearances and the like. So you had to create original versions of classic Universal monsters. Well, we had a genius in our corner who was Stan Winston. Stan Winston. But, but let me tell you a story first. <laughs> I wanted to start this movie with the little plane going around the earth and oh, saying yeah. it's a Universal picture in black and white. And actually in the first draft, which Shane wrote, yeah. we said we we open in black and white, scratchy film. And we so consequently our first uh, port of call was universal when we finished the script yeah. we took it to them they read the script and they said this intellectual property means nothing to us we're happy oh. to put we're happy to put you know the, the Karloff monster on our you know coffee mugs at the Universal Studios tour uh, gift shop but as far as making movies of these monsters, we have no interest in that. That's that's going to go nowhere. Cut to, I, I had a meeting on the lot about a year ago, I guess pre-pandemic. But but uh, I'm on the lot and I'm walking across uh, and, and sort of towards the back of the lot, of the studio, and I see uh, that the the the, the uh, parking spots have this little sign that says Dark Universe. I go, oh, whoa, there's a Dark Universe. I wonder where that is. And then the next car next to that has, and the next car next to that, Dark Universe. And I realized that I'm standing in front of a building devoted to doing what we did in 1987. Trying to marvelize their monster collection. Right. Correct. Well, that was the problem. They didn't want to reboot it in the 80s way. Their first instinct when they made that new Mummy movie was to do a big parachute sequence, fighting in midair. You know, and I thought... You wrote that for the first draft of Monster Squad. Oh no, it was a Zeppelin. Um, I don't. I don't recall. I don't remember. I wrote a couple versions of the Mummy: one for Clive Barker and one taking over for George Romero after he left the project. But the Mummy is one of those things that that seems to be speaks more to the the classic ghost story realm than it does the epic horror. In fact, there's a question a friend of mine always asks: Is epic horror scary, and is it possible? Because and we've thought about that. Can you, you can have something amazing in a third act, but you know, like World War Z, was it scary? Was well, we action packed? The, we have the director of the stand right yeah. here with us right now. But so. that would, I would argue that the stand isn't epic horror, because it, well, I don't know. I suppose the end, once again the third act, but along the way, it's very mysterious. It's very ghost-like. It's very. Uh, incidental and uh, situational. So you have all these characters forming these relationships and having little hints of what's to come, but it's different than vampires invade the city. Right, right. You know, <clears throat> It's um, not the simple supernatural monster. Yeah, and to me, uh, I always appreciated, Stephen King would say, uh, there are three types of horror. There's the keenest and most difficult, which is terror which is the sense that something is just subtly wrong. Like you look out your window and the lake moved, you know, right, that sort of right. thing. Then there's horror, which is that moment of dread and fear when something evil erupts. And then there's revulsion, which is you open the door and the rats are chewing the intestines. Right. And he right. said, I like to sprinkle all three and get <laughs> mm -hmm. the proper balance. Well-balanced horror, yeah. <laughs> Varietal horror. Um, so, Fred, you were working on a... <clears throat> Godzilla 3D script. Yes. Tell me about that yeah. process. And this was shortly before you were able to finally a good script. make your first movie. That was my first job. Um, um, Steve Miner, who genre fans know, is the director of the uh, a couple of the Friday the Thirteenth films, and he went on to make and he, he did a Halloween film. He's he, he's done a lot of mainstream um, work in film and television, dramas and comedies and everything, and he. 
took a liking to this script that I had written in college, not in a class, just wanting to get my career uh, started. And uh, he was the first American producer to approach Toho and say, let's do Godzilla for an American audience and, and in English. I remember all the horror magazines at the time talking about that yeah. movie, and it was going to happen. Yeah. And the script that I wrote was very sort of Irwin Allen. Um, it oh, was, so as much a disaster movie. It as was. A... It was massive, and yeah. ultimately that was its undoing because at that point Steve's biggest movie had been Friday Thirteenth Part Three. Three D. Yes, um, and this was a budget jump of you know, you know, seven to tenfold. So ultimately, mm. it just didn't. It, it ultimately was never made, but it was it was a great entree in, into it. And I was frankly never a big Godzilla fan, but I was a big fan of the Universal monsters, and I was also a huge fan of the uh, uh, comedy groups and teams of the '30s and '40s. Whether, yeah. whether it was Laurel and Hardy or the Marx Brothers, I loved Abbott and Costello. Yeah. Um, and and I loved the Universal monster movies. So. For me, Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein was the holy grail. And for me. I, that movie and, and A Hard Day's Night are the two movies I've seen more than any other. <laughs> I get it. I totally get it. And, and every time I look at it, I, <clears throat> w w what strikes me is uh, Charles Barton was the director. And I don't know. I, 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 did they have tone meetings at Universal in the 40s? I don't know. I kind of doubt it. I think it was the way that it was done back then. <clears throat> I think they inadvertently just never thought not to do it the way they did it. Right. But what they did that was very striking to me, even as a kid, and it was something that we tried to, to inject into Monster Squad, is that the monsters are taken seriously <clears throat> and the comedians play the jokes. And there's a scene towards the end, toward the, the, the last yeah. act of Abbott and Costello McFranks is just amazing. And it's them in the scary house on the island, and the monster has risen from his slab, and he's chasing Lou down the hall. And, and, and Lou Costello is being hilarious, and, and Bud is trying to calm him down and being also scared. But the monster is the monster. I mean, Glenn Strange plays the part. The makeup's fantastic. He's scary. So you have a scary visage in the scene, and then you've got these buffoons in the scene. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, was just magical. And that's kind of what I said to Shane was, let's do Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, but instead of Abbott and Costello, we do The Little Rascals. Ah, that was yeah. brilliant. And that was, the, that was the premise of the movie. Yeah, and the idea he pitched me initially was, you know, what if they, you know, they have a clubhouse and they, you know, they like to build their own race cars and do things. Basically, it's, <clears throat> they've not yet lost their uh, initial joy in life, their, their sense of just the amazing bigness and, and, absolute unpredictability of the world the possibilities are endless for these kids and so they're more keen on believing in things that others would reject um have a real cop investigating a murder and only the kid knows it's a monster that did it no one's going to believe the kid but his other friends might um once again it's also reminiscent to me of a cornell woolrich story it's about a little kid called nightmare in one iteration kid living in a small town he walks to school with this girl this sort of sad lonely girl who likes to run chalk along a fence he used to buy her chalk and that was their relationship she would just draw chalk on things so there's a guy in town who's taking kids and killing them and his father's a cop and you get it through the kid's eyes he hears these adult things but you know sort you as like the, the window which was also Colonel Woolrich right? yes yeah. he's my favorite yeah. so eventually the girl is taken and there's all this hush. They don't want to tell the kids, but it filters down that maybe this kid's girlfriend, this little girl, is going to be, something horrible is going to happen. So he starts following her chalk from the last day. Oh. And he ends up in the serial killer's house. And the dad's looking somewhere else. It's like Silence of the Lambs, but for kids, you know. Everyone's <laughs> this way, and only one eight-year-old who, whose friend, who doesn't even understand what horror things she's faced with, and he ends up solving the case. And I loved it because it was just the, everything, like Fred said, was taken seriously, except you saw it through the eyes of kids. Um, and, and so often, uh, 
so often too much is made of you know having to round the edges off. It's like they have a great script in Hollywood. The first instinct, we like this movie a lot. Let's just sand the edges down a little bit. Yeah. What, what are you doing? Well, before we release it, we're going to sand the edges down just a little bit. Wide well, as possible audience, yeah. Yeah, we're just going to take a little here and a little there. Well, that little here and little there is often the, the magic sauce. Particularly in horror films, because when a horror film goes too far, it's memorable. Yep. And if it doesn't go too far, then you just sort of go shrug and say, well, that was fine. Just another one of those. Right. Yeah. So you're working from a kid's point of view, which is really well handled. Uh, and you had done that with Night of the Creeps. Did Night of the Creeps influence your ability to set the Monster Squad up? It did, because it hadn't come out yet. You're never hotter than when your movie hasn't been released. Um, One in the can. Yeah. But it's funny, you know, Shane's absolutely right. There was a kind of uh, a, a primal uh, forward momentum with us. Like, we're now going to do this, now I'm going to do that. Because we were young and nobody had said no yet. So uh, the other linchpin in, in Monster Squad was, um, was Peter Hyams, who um, I had seen... Capricorn One up in San Francisco. And, and he just, directed one of my episodes of Amazing Stories yes, that I wrote. Yes, yeah. Peter was a hero of mine. Capricorn One knocked me out of my seat. And his follow-up, which is uh, little known and, and does not exist on Blu-ray, which is uh, Hanover Street, which is a... Really? That's not available? It's. It, I mean, I've got a Blu-ray of it, but, but which is this just w wonderful World War II spy movie with romance and a, and it's a thriller and it's a flat out thriller and just with humor and whatnot. Peter was a hero of mine. So once I had gotten, gotten a toehold into the business, I said to uh, my agent, you know, will you send my script to Peter Hyams? And Peter read the script that I had uh, written prior to all this and uh, he called me in to have a meeting. I had a meeting with him at his office at MGM uh, which is now Sony, and I'll never forget. I walk in, and he had t recently done uh, Twenty Ten, and Hal Nine Thousand was on the wall, <laughs> lit up. Wow! So I'm sitting there talking to Peter, and we're talking about this and that, and I just can't help but feel the gaze of Hal Nine Thousand staring at me. So I think he sort of said, I think he sort of looked at what uh, Steven Spielberg was doing, mentoring. In, in many cases, older directors, but <laughs> yes. but but having creating this playground where he where he can have a hand in it, but let Toby or whoever it is direct the movie, and I think P Peter saw an opportunity to maybe do that because he was he was very successful at that moment. Um, but he wasn't producing much other than his own stuff for him to take on this project. I think he really was quite liked exceptional. It. He told me once that he really liked the script, mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, and and so he came aboard and really sort of showed us the way, and we set it up with a, a company called Taft Barish, which was Keith Barish and Taft Entertainment. And uh, they made movies for about two years, and this was one of them. So while you were doing this, Shane, you were getting a reputation as an action writer more than in the horror world. Yeah. I think it was around the same time that you wrote the first Lethal Weapon script. Yes, actually... The first thing I did, which was inspired by my talks with Fred and by our mutual love of, uh, <clears throat> we, we loved the idea of Vietnam, because we, we both grew up in that era, and I read everything I could about Vietnam, and, you know, Fred was involved with a movie that, you know, kind of a horror version of that called House, and I took my own version that Shadow Company was a right. script that never got made that I worked on, and we, we were both into horror, but along the way, you know, Shadow Company was sitting around, and... I just started writing a cop piece because I was Dirty Harry is the seminal movie. Bullet, Dirty Harry, 48 hours. You know, if you put a double, triple bill of those, you could probably see every single influence that as a kid sparked with me. <laughs> I mean, I had to uh, take a shot. And um, I would interview some police and do some ride-alongs, things like that. And, uh, so, you know, and, and even then, I was just, eh, I'm still a kid. I was still looking to Fred for inspiration. I stopped halfway through Lethal Weapon and said, ah, this, what am I doing? This is crap. Um, eventually took it out of the trash, literally picked it out of a can of trash into which I at one point, you know, uh, despondently uh, tossed it on top of some dinner. A fortuitous resurrection. Yeah, well, if, if you believe in that, if you like the movies. The point is I pulled it out 
I still have the copy with, you know, coffee stains and <laughs> lettuce and whatever. And it it's a result of it it speaks to the 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 story of the actual writer, you know. It's a, what's this? Oh, that's the first fifty page. Why are they brown? That's coffee. What happened? I threw it away. What's, why are the rest? Of, oh, I took it out again. I didn't have a choice because I didn't have anything else to do. You couldn't that's like Stephen King new. and Carrie. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Whatever it is, Carrie is is. I mean, it's hard to say because it's short. But I, Carrie is his purest book. It's in mm. some ways his best book. It's just. It's everything you need to know about a brand new writer and why he should be given the mantle in one yeah. book. Yeah. You know. So you're writing Lethal Weapon, more oriented toward action than in horror. But at this time, you're finally getting Monster Squad off the ground. <clears throat> so tell me about the process of working together. Did you do a draft first and then you go over it? Or did you say, I'll do 10 pages, you do 10 pages? I think he, Fred would, <clears throat> I would, submit stuff to Fred. He was working on something. I forget it was. It might have been... I was in post on... On, on Creeps. 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 Yeah. And I would just type scenes and I'd give him a quarter or half and he'd say, keep going. And he would go back over it. Um, like on Iron Man, a lot of the stuff was Drew Pierce writing a first scene and I would fix it. And this, in this case, I think it was Fred just fixing the stuff that I was doing. <laughs> um which is fine. It didn't need yeah. fixing. It, it needed editing. As Shane, to this day, I think, he, he just, he, he gives you the kitchen sink. And when it comes down to thinking, well, how am I actually going to make this? That's what, <laughs> hence my Zeppelin joke. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but I think Shane, by and large, wrote most of the first draft himself. And then I sort of rewrote it. There's actually only one. I don't know if you know this or remember this. There's oh. only one scene in the movie that we literally wrote. To, we've subsequently done a lot together and yeah. written things in the room together. But there's only one scene in Monster Squad that we wrote together in the room. And that's the squad outside the scary mansion. And Horace is having second thoughts right. and saying, can't we be math squad instead? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or nature squad, look at rocks, collect birds. And I remember us going, look at birds and collect rocks is what most people would do. But we thought it'd be funnier if he said, look at rocks, collect birds. That's the only thing that we wrote together in the room. Yeah. So what about the prep process? You're working with Stan Winston, also yeah. Richard Edlund from Star Wars. You got two of the, one of the best visual effects guys in the world one of the best makeup effects guys in the world, and you're recreating classic, familiar monsters. So uh, take me kind of step by step on the prep process. Well, the beauty is, is that Stan, uh, God bless him, was, he, he, he was really a cheerleader for us. He, he took me under his wing, very sweet, lovely man. I really miss him. He was really great. Yeah. And one of the things was that somebody of that stature, you go, this is the guy who made the Terminator, and this is the guy who did the aliens. Well, he was a monster kid too, uh, you know, a bit older. But yeah. so he sort of was like a kid in a candy store. I get to redo the Jack Pierce makeups. And so we had to be very careful about things that were sort of obvious trademarks of those monsters now dracula luckily is just a guy with a cape right easy so enough that, that was easy regular, yeah. uh mummy similar because we could change his size we could change uh the specifics also, he's a, a guy mummy is up. not a fictional creation a mummy is a mummy they, right right they, they haven't copyright no that. trademark on yeah. that yeah the, no obviously the frankenstein monster did even though the characters in the public domain right that specific look the karloff monster was trademarked and so we sort of we sort of made it up We're like well let's make his head not quite as flat and let's put the bolts in a different place and so it was really sort of just adjusting it enough so that they wouldn't throw the book at us and we got lucky with that what's funny is the creature and i think I have to say, I honestly believe that our creature is on par with the with the original. Which is saying something, because that's it's, maybe the last great creature. Well, uh, Predator, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, and, and how we got away with that, uh, with, with calling him the creature, I'm not quite sure. It's almost like Universal said, now we're not interested in this, so yeah, go ahead, go and make it. Yes. And, and they kind of were hands off. Just ignored it. Right. <clears throat> Um, and what amuses me about the creature, though, is that I wanted him in the movie, but there was no really good reason for him to be in the movie. <laughs> so I said, wait, what if the car what if the sarcophagus with the Frankenstein monster lands in the swamp? Somebody's <laughs> got to fish it out. Yeah. Hence, it's not a swamp. It's hence a the lagoon. creature shows up. Yeah. Why he's there at the end, I don't know at all. 
Um, <laughs> and who who are we missing? The, oh, the Wolfman. Yeah. yeah, Wolfman's got Nards. Yeah, well, the Wolfman is is you know the werewolf became generic after a while. We just yeah. we called him Wolfman, and again, the design was was, it was different. Not the same. Not yeah. the same. So tell me about the process, uh, the casting process. Shane, were you in on the casting sessions? We we sat in, yeah, and we <clears throat> we would look at the various kids. I mean, ultimately, I I sort of. I didn't really weigh in on the casting of those kids. I would say who I liked, but Peter and Fred together, I think were able to recognize um, kids who just sort of had that confidence in them and that, that little bit of, uh, like James L. Brooks once told me how he cast the kid in Jerry Maguire. Hmm. Was everyone, he said he had an audition and he would, it was just a, an improv at the table. There was a table with a, in the middle of it was a plate of cookies and some apples and the orange juice and then they just sat everyone like it was breakfast and he watched the kid and the kid was listening and then the kid would just he wanted a cookie <laughs> and he didn't know how to get so while everyone's filming everything else the kid's just figuring out is it okay if i get a cookie and he thought that's the level of absorption and immersion i needed in acting <laughs> you know yeah, I mean, James L. Brooks has gotten some of the best kid performances ever. I'll do anything. The little girl in that oh, is yes. phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. So, Fred, what about working with kids? Uh, they take. I've worked with a lot of kids over years, and it's a little bit different, but not so much as people would think. I mean, if you treat them as equals, you seem to get their respect and not treat them as kids. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, you know, Shane can speak to this more than I because he's, he's you know, been lucky enough to, to direct some, some really major league actors. Yeah. And I think he knows, you know, when to defer and when to know that, you know, they've got a handle on it and you're not really helping them necessarily. But kids don't have any ego at all, at least the kids in this movie. Didn't. And I was also still, you know, 26, 27 yeah. years old. So I still remembered what it was like. So it was sort of like we were just playing. Like, do this. You know, I would literally make a face and they would copy me and do that face, which is something, you know, you don't do with Sir Ben Kingsley, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> He'd actually probably be open to it. The best actors are not the ones who say, don't give me a line rating. <laughs> yeah. They're usually like, what do you want What do you want me to say? What, what word? What word? Oh, yeah. that, okay, I'll do that. It's amazing. The Tell them the, uh, another take story. Oh, that was that was actually great because we made a mistake, a camera mistake, while we're panning back and forth, and Sir Ben is just sitting there, and this isn't even this is for the trailer and the promotional materials, right. so it's not even a scene from the movie. It's just him being the Mandarin and doing his business, and it's tremendous focus required for him to just continue to just project this and be this, as we just dolly past him again and again. Take one, take two, take three. Sorry, Ben, we had a technical problem. Take four. He's done. I know he's done, but we had a technical problem. I said. Sir Ben, I have no, uh, I, I, I feel com uncomfortable asking, but, you know, could you do something for us? I mean, we've, we'll pay you back, <laughs> but yeah. can, is it possible? Can I, uh, can I ask you to do one more take? Is that egregious to do another take? And he looked at me and said, what are you talking about? Another take? No, 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 no. Another chance. <laughs> That's great. He would have wonderful? done 10 takes. That's great. <laughs> well, the the course of the production, what were the most challenging elements of this? You, you've got kids, you've got makeups, you've got animals. Um, a lot of the things that are the most complicated things a director can deal with in the making of a movie. I'm a big fan of setting your themes up early and then paying them off later. In this case, I didn't go to film school. So the biggest hurdle in the first week was not being fired by Peter <laughs> because he uh, has had and has a very specific idea of what constitutes how to direct a scene. I've and, seen that in motion. Yes. Yeah. Um, like you like the lighting in your episode of Raising Stories that he did looks just like the Monster Squad because he's he did all the lighting himself. He, he's obsessed yeah. with his uh, his. Uh, the mineral, practical mineral lights. oil smoke yep. and all that and so we use no movie lights all practical lights yeah and it looks beautiful he's yeah. a, he's a master but so that was that was new to me we were going to do that i said oh okay that's fine um but since i hadn't gone to film school and i don't know if they teach this in film school but the, you know there are sort of the the 1925 rules you shoot a master and you do this and that and my heroes were all 
you know, Spielberg and Larry Kasdan and people who clearly didn't give a crap about master shots. Like, mm -hmm. what's the, what? What am I showing? What's where is the camera and why? So I was doing a lot of that, and he was like, "Well, we don't know where we are." So, well, we will when we get there. And I was also think I think cutting in the camera a little bit. And so we had a, we, there was a very dark day on day two where it was sort of like, am I still going to have this job? Mm. And um, Rob Cohen, who was one of our producers, went to bat for me because he was actually, a, 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 he, he thought most, uh, Night of the Creeps was, was pretty well made. And he said, you know, he knows what he's doing. Just give him a little, give him a little bit of room. And, and interestingly, Peter was much less hands-on and the less hands-on he was, the better the, the the better uh i got along with the crew and the more smooth the production was and i gave him his i gave him his master shots and i gave i, I did sort of followed his guidelines a bit but then as we got on i went reverted to my <clears throat> to my uh, nasty habits and, oh he learned to trust you yeah so the movie really is it's I, I his stamp is on it but in a good way and he let me make the movie i wanted to make and you know I, the the third act, I think, is all me. Well, how great to be a monster kid and to make an ultimate monster movie with all of the classic mm -hmm. studio creatures. Yeah, it was amazing. It had to be like a playground totally. every day. And Forrest J. Ackerman came to the set one night, and somewhere I have a photograph of him and myself and, and Andre Gower, who played uh, Sean, the lead kid. Right. And that was sort of a, a real poetic kind of capper to the whole thing. Well, what was that first public screening like for you guys to see it with an audience? Was it a test screening or was it just test. opening night? Or, test yeah. We did have a test, yeah. It went pretty well. Um, the, when the effects aren't in, you know, people are a lot more savvy nowadays. So when the, the bay doors of a plane open and Dracula turns it into a bat and they just see this stick with a bat flapping on the end of it, <laughs> You know, they're not going to buy into it the way they would today and sort of go, oh, okay, that's going to get replaced. Yeah. You know? um, but I think it went very well. I, I, you know, honestly, the Monster Squad, I think, could have done well. I have no idea um, how you would have known to even go see the film based on, at that time, what was the, seemingly, to me, the most inept rollout slash ad campaign I had ever witnessed on any movie. TriStar um, didn't seem to know what they had, or even if they did, to know what to do with it. I mean, if I were 12 years old, that would be my favorite movie of all time. Yeah, but you have to know that it exists and even know what you're seeing. Yeah. And instead, it looked the rollout made it seem like it was almost for <laughs> kindergartners. The other thing that I think is ironic in light of the world that we live in now is that the PG-13 was actually divisive. Now it's the sweet yes. spot. Everybody wants a PG-13 because it's, it means it's going to be edgy enough for the, uh, for the older audience, but still maintain some, some tranquility for the young crowd. In those days, they were confused and scared. Like, is this going to be too violent for young kids? Right. right. Or is it going to be too soft for the older kids? And so that was a marketing issue. Well, you had that with uh, Night of the Creeps as well, right? Wasn't that PG-13? It was, it was R. That was just hard Oh, it R, was yeah. an R. Yeah. It was a gentle R. It was a, it was a gentle R, yeah. yeah. If, if exploding heads <clears throat> is considered gentle. There's <laughs> yeah. there certain rules which, you know, like any certain amounts of blood, certain colors of blood, as you know, um, even in a movie which doesn't feel particularly violent, there's just certain boxes that get ticked and they get an automatic edit. Right. And one of the most frustrating things I've seen over the years in films, horror or otherwise, is they, the director will put a pretty neat film out there and they'll say, okay, but we start got to start cutting frames. Right. And then in this scene, it's violent, but if we cut 10 frames, well, actually, we need 12. Okay, we need 14 frames. Now you don't even know what's happening. Your rhythm is off and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, Shane, it took you much longer to direct your first movie, which was Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang, but... You'd had tremendous success as a screenwriter with The Last Boy Scout and then The, the, the Last... One Kiss Goodnight. Yeah, The Last Kiss Goodnight, which was a record-breaking spec sale for a script. So you were doing these giant movies, writing these giant movies, but still choosing not to direct. And you developed a bit of cynicism about Hollywood and action movies that you were making, right? I didn't really feel cynical about action movies i felt cynical about the hollywood community and um just what they 
tended to reward what they rewarded was not someone who made a lot of money and so I thought everyone was collegial like you said in the horror field so wonderful everyone among the creatives seemed to support each other um, you know I think I got thrown by because my friend Dale Lawner is a wonderful filmmaker very smart guy and he said hey look I'm in the Motion Picture Academy I vote for the Oscars every year want me to sponsor you in and uh, I think at that time the rule was that you had to have at least two produced works of quote substantive merit. Right, right. And so that's I, why I'm not in. <laughs> <laughs> but we had I had you know, Lethal Weapon, Long Kiss Goodnight, Last Boy Scout, The Monster Squad, you know, and they said, yeah, we just don't think your career merits a, a position in the academy. A membership. Oh, really? But come back in a year when you've got some more material, and we'll reevaluate. So. And not, now, was I heartbroken over not being in the academy? No. Of course not. Was I given a wake-up call as to, okay, so I'm just trying to be like a worker among workers. And uh, because they're paying me this much money, I'm not being afforded that uh, recognition. They're seeing me instead as some greedy fuck. Hmm. And so that was disappointing and also I just never writing was always difficult for me I never liked it never knew how I'd do it fraud syndrome imposter syndrome never I've written my last funny line you've heard this from writers I don't know how I did it I don't know what I did I don't know what zone I was in but I can't get back there hmm. I st 1999 actually started writing something yeah you'd stepped away yeah I did I didn't care also I started drinking heavily you know oh but you know what? It's cool. We took a break, did a movie, came off okay. Then plunged, drank way too much, added cocaine to that mix. Um, and then uh, got sober with some wonderful people who helped me around 2008. So it's it's always a journey. You slide off the map. I remember a guy telling me, you know, I don't know who you are, but I liked your script. I think you've got a future. It's like, yeah, <laughs> I did like four movies before you were even while you were still like picking your nose and flinging it at the girl <laughs> in the pigtails, I was basically sitting. Be, um, he says she didn't have pigtails. Yeah, <laughs> um, it was. Yeah, I, I fell off the map. We all fall off. Look at Fred's movies, and then suddenly he's being asked twenty years later to appear at conventions because now they like the movie. Right. You never know. There's always another chapter. And another chance. Another chance. Yes. <laughs> another chance. So here we are. We're just fighting and scrabbling, and I'm working on something. I don't know if it's going to work. Yeah. In fact, these days, it's not Hollywood's not much fun. But we we persevere because what other choice have we? Well, you've also made things that have stuck in people's hearts. You hit people with Monster Squad uh, at a time of their growing up that sticks with you. When you're 12, 13 years old, the movies that you embrace then are the ones that stay in your heart for the rest of your life. Yep. And you've done that. And here we're 35 years after the fact, and we're talking about Monster Squad, and it's for 35th anniversary, but it's great. But what was it that led you to finally decide to direct after years of not? I didn't like, I would write something, and writing was a hell of a process. And I'd finish it, rewrite it, rip things apart, gouge my hair out, poke myself in the eye, you know, just let set fire to my hair. Um, and all of this so that when it was done and rewritten, they could say, okay, start over now. Here's a blank page, start over. Same process again. Self-flagellation. Yeah, yeah. Wait, isn't what, I want a step in the middle where for, I get to sort of dance around and be social for a minute and enjoy this process rather than it always being a fucking torture test. Where you're by yourself in a room. Yeah, hey, Mom, I, I'm writing. Yeah, <laughs> shut up and clean your room, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'd rather be on set working, forcing myself to be social, forcing whatever tendencies I have to be bookish or shy to just sort of take a vacation for a minute and allow that focus and that zone to be a, a, a connection with people. I mean, goddamn... Connecting with people is what writers often lack. Yeah. If I can add, you have to remember that Shane was an actor in college. She was a theater major. He was acting in plays. Um, once we all sort of got into the movies, he was doing roles in other people's movies. Um, he was in Night of the Creeps, but you barely see him. So 
the the process of being you know putting something on its feet being with the actors bringing it to life i think that's intoxicating i think that's what he wanted i think that's what we all want i think well it's why you went to film school too to yeah. make movies didn't want to make movies no <laughs> you wanted to act no i wanted i, I studied mostly theater and I studied the, the tradition, theatrical tradition. I'm more in love with old stories about John Gilgood. Huh. And it, uh, give me whatever, some boards and a player and all the world's a stage and all that stuff. And the movie stuff came separately from that. And it was because of the Pat and Fred. And it was unavoidable. Once you, re you attained such a level of success in the film world, it certainly was the path of least resistance. Yeah, and it's also the most frustrating thing because I always say, and I've told Fred this, no one ever, on the, on the bus trip, on the first trip on the day of location scouting for the first day of a brand new movie, the crew's there, you know, they're meeting each other, you've got the DP with you and the producer and the line guy and the AD, and you're all riding to look at locations and no one says, we're going to make a shit movie. <laughs> No, they go, this is going to be great. Okay, yeah, yeah. You, you got your, yeah, I, I like this place. Over here. Okay, photograph that and remember that. You're all like, this is going to be a great, well, 10% are. Uh. And the rest is, so how do you stay with making the good movie? Um, I've, I've had a couple crash and burns where I, you know, um, but I've also had the, the good luck to hang on and, and, and insist on, not releasing something out into the wild until it possessed, I thought, a sufficient quality to guarantee its survival amongst the pack of other films that were falling off. I have, thankfully, at least one or two of the films that people do remember. So that's the trick. That's the test. How do we make films that don't just last for two minutes and come out and disappear based on being so timely that we're like break into, you know, electric boogaloo. Okay, great. <laughs> but, you know, no one now is going to say, hey, you know what I'd really love to see? Let's, is the 50th anniversary of break it. What, if, it's, what if we watch it and it's fantastic? It might be fantastic. <laughs> Menachem Golan, yeah. <laughs> but you want film, you're, you have the luxury of a few films which have been rediscovered, stood the test of time, and I think now Fred does too. No, we all do. Yeah. That's, but you said it up front. That's the feeling we want, is to make product that rises somehow, that pops. You know, why did Stranger Things pop? Why is it so... It, we won't want the water cooler movie, but more than the water cooler movie, we want the one that maybe five years from now they're still talking about. Yeah. What was it that made you decide to actually direct and it be a Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? Um, I desperately wanted to do a noir piece. I was trying to do a romance, like a... Preston Sturgis, James Brooks thing. Yeah, I, I love that film. Well, I couldn't fix the romance part. Ah. I, I went to Brooks again and again, and he said, I loved what you're doing at the first part, but man, you're kind of losing me here. I don't understand mm. where you're going with this. And I was devastated. I went home, and I was like, well, my mentor says he doesn't even follow where I'm headed. He can't find the, the, the through line. And I, went, and I knew, I just came, to, I knew I could make it work if there was a murder. Mm. I said, I got to put a detective and a murder in it. <laughs> And then I just started with what I had, kept some scenes, and just put in the detective and the murder. And then I knew I had a, a hybrid, which inexplicably I thought, I like this almost better than the romance I was planning. Hmm. This is good. And it's still no one liked it. No one would make it. It got rejected everywhere. Finally, Joel Silver. Why do I work with Joel Silver? Because he has believed in process projects throughout the years that other people have not. He backs right. our play. Right. So what's great is that you guys, it's not just been a history together, but it's a present together as well. You two collaborated on a monster movie, on The Predator, <clears throat> writing for you to direct, Shane. So what was that like, coming back together and, and working on a project the way you had in the very beginning of your careers? Well, it was enormously fun at first. <laughs> at first. <laughs> Fred? Uh, well, I was very blessed because uh, I, I uh, you know, nobody was knocking on the door uh, a couple of years ago, and then uh, Shane had found this this uh, um, collection of uh, western novels, a series of westerns, pulp westerns by, of all things, uh, a British author hmm. that he was in love with, and uh, uh, managed to sell it to Amazon, and we did that as a pilot for a TV series called Edge, and. Um, 
we, we had a lot of fun. It seemed to just sort of flow. Yeah, that uh, one was fun. And and then then I guess the phone call came on the Predator, and and I think, uh, you know, I can't speak for for Shane, but I I think you felt like well this is, this is kind of, uh, in the cards. Because yeah, I, I was in the first... because yeah. here we get to play in that same Monster Squad sandbox with a nominal, seminal character from, the time when, when I was doing the Predator, he was doing Monster Squad. It was yeah. all it was all this it was all intertwined. It was all the same time. And uh, in fact, you know, the house that Monster Squad uh, Sean lived in was across the street from the house that Murtaugh and Lethal Weapon lived in and on the oh. Warner's Ranch. They, they you were... can literally see one house in, in, in each movie, Lethal Weapon and Monster Squad. You can see the house that appears in the other movie. On the as, th as though all of Shane's characters live on the same street. <laughs> yeah. And it, it got to the feeling of, of, of you know, we, let's do the Monster Squad again. Um. And, and we tried. And it turned into a source of frustration for you. It was a source of frustration, but part of, I'll take the hits for whatever I did wrong on that um, in terms of I, 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 I just didn't make the, the Predator movie that people wanted to see, apparently. But you made a lot more than is in the movie. Your whole third act got changed by the studio. Is that right? Um, I, I'm not going to take the road of blaming uh, anyone, including the studio, for uh, a failed movie. Um yeah, it's we tried something different, you know. And in retrospect, we, we you know talking of finger on the pulse. I guess we just didn't have that finger. We were making a drive-in movie, and it seems like what now is attracting so much attention is this wonderful art piece that just came out, which has echoes of Kubrick. You know. <laughs> okay. Okay. So oh that maybe is something we should have done instead. But who knows? I mean, we, we tried something different. I love that drive-in movie. I, you hadn't said that to me in person. That's fantastic. Yeah. I love it because it's true. It was a Halloween drive-in movie, not just a drive-in movie. It's one you go to on Halloween yeah, yeah. as a kid. And, and so Halloween is in the movie. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, it the Predator had such a solid, rock-solid fan base of people expecting that sort of more portentous you know very solemn and almost reverential approach to this myth although the first movie is pretty goofy <laughs> i mean you can say that yeah and it's a in a good way yeah yeah but the the mythic quality of the predator is what people seem to respond to um so chalk it up as tried something in some people's eyes we made the wrong movie we filmed the wrong script for what they would have preferred i'm okay with that and I own any and all mistakes made on the film. Um, time to get back to my wheelhouse. Speaking of which, just in wrapping up, the Monster Squad, what's, what do you love about monsters? What is it that you carry <laughs> with you? Both of you, Shane, starting with you. Um, <clears throat> I love the notion of not reserving the true evils of the world for... I mean, there, there are people who say, don't involve kids, having to face such horror. But to me, it's like, kids are full of fear. What can you show a kid to convince him that he's got potential, he's bulletproof, he's valuable and invulnerable, is to let him confront some of the darker, deeper things in life that wait there for us and not shield him. And often, I mean, there's a catharsis to me when things get bad and you don't sugarcoat them, and then you escape at the end. For instance, who watching Charlie's Angels ever really felt threatened when they were tied up in a warehouse and there's these vicious <laughs> thugs? They go, we got these three beautiful models over here. All right, just, just leave them there. Keep cleaning your guns. I want to play some pinochle. Don't touch the girls. I mean, of course they're going to escape. Not a single episode ended with them. Chrissy's dead. <laughs> yeah. Or they cut off her fingers. or Nothing. But to me, the cathartic scene is you kidnap someone, you beat them up, you cut off their fingers, and then they, Marathon Man, they torture the shit out of him, and he just starts walking, and then he starts running. Yeah. And they chase him, and he just, and you buy it. You say, wait, he's just doing what he knows. He's just putting one foot in front of the, now his, his zone's kicking in, and they can't catch him. And you believe that this guy who had no shot, who is as low as it can get, beaten, tortured, brutalized, when he at the end walks away, you say, okay, I think that you can come back from bad things. But if you sugarcoat the bad things and you make the monsters not monstrous, 
then there's no catharsis if I could come back from something real, or something yeah. dangerous. You know, it's easy to escape from something that's not real and not dangerous. What about you, Fred? What is it about monsters that draws you? Well, I had a strange revelation about this movie in particular uh, a, a, a little while back, which was, you know, I was not the most popular kid in school. I was not the most, you know. I... Wait, a horror filmmaker who wasn't the most popular kid in <laughs> school? That's and, unheard and, of. And that was the other great thing about college and, <laughs> and, and meeting Shane and all of our friends is that we all had found our, our tribe. And so the Monster Squad, in a way, is, is, the, is the tribe of the sort of the outcast, misbegotten, the kids that nobody wants to play with. There's the overweight kid, and there's the nerdy kid, and there's the, and, and Rudy, who's, who's, you know, several years older than the rest of them, and what the hell is he doing with these younger kids? <laughs> so they're all kind of outcasts, and I realized, so are the monsters. Yeah. They're the definitive outcasts. So in a weird sort of way, the movie is providing a mirror image of individuals without self-esteem who are castigated, who are looked upon as lesser or as weird, and they have to fight each other, but in a strange way, they're, they're mirror images of each other. Well, thanks for the movies, thanks for the monsters, and thanks for joining us, that was great. It's been a oh, pleasure. pleasure, anytime. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.